going to look at an exposition of God's covenant with man, um, which is chapter 7. And this is his restoration of um, humanity. A little recap and encouragement. Um, I encourage all of y'all to continue to read, reread the chapters we're going through. Um, here's a few quotes from Sinclair Ferguson regarding the Confession of Faith. It remains the fullest and most carefully constructed brief exposition of the Christian faith ever written. Uh, the confession was read, pondered, studied by Christians of all levels of education. The crofter and the craftsman might be as familiar with it as the teacher and the theologians. The confession puts calcium into the Christian's spiritual bones. And the confession took me a stage further in understanding the greatness of God, the glory of Christ, ministry of the Spirit, and the nature of the Christian life, the church, and the world to come. So I encourage you all to use it as Tower described as a lens for Scripture and um, always have it open. Here's what we've covered so far. Holy Scripture, God and the Trinity, eternal decree, creation, providence, and the fall. And we're looking at the covenant, which is the first time that we look at God and man together. Previously, we looked at God and man and the fall, and now we look at what that looks like together. Um, J.I. Packer says a covenant in Scripture are solemn agreements negotiated or unilaterally imposed that bind the parties to each other in permanent defined relationships with specific promises, claims, obligations on both sides. There are six sections to this chapter. Um, <clears throat> and here's the first one. It states, the distance between God and the creature are so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath pleased to express by way of covenant. So, what this first part of the first section is trying to expose is that there's an infinite gap between a creator and creatures. And so, and this is pre-fall. This doesn't have anything to do with us right after the fall. Just looking at pre-fall, we instinct, instinctively owe obedience to our creator. So duty and obligation is inalienable uh, from the creature. We're naturally under God's law, our natural position is a debtor. One of the resources I was using is a book by A. a. Hodge, and he explains it. To, to be a created, intelligent, moral agent is to be under all the obligation of obeying the will and of living for the glory of the absolute owner and governor. The very act of creation brings the creature under obligation to the creator. So in the second part of this section, 
there's no way we can fully enjoy God unless he, he comes to us. So the enjoyment of the Creator's fullness and love by the creature is a matter of sovereign grace. The Creator comes to us. He condescends to deal with us meaningly in order to have a relationship with Him. Um, it's not a matter of our fall again, but rather God's greatness and our smallness. God is pleased to intervene voluntarily by way of covenant. <clears throat> That's section 1. Section 2. This is talking about the first covenant that we see in, in Scripture, which is between Adam, who represents all of humanity, and God. Since the first covenant was made with man, was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam, and in him to his posterity, that's everyone after Adam, upon the condition of perfect and personal obedience. stated the covenant of works. The promise here is life, which is not necessarily continued existence, but communion with God. The condition is perfect obedience, and the penalty is death, um, but more specifically exclusion from communion with God. And Adam undoubtedly represents all of humanity. Uh, there's no way, no other way to look at that. Adam and Eve were prohib prohibited from eating the fruit. Um, their response to this commandment would determine their destiny. Um, the requirement was perfection. Why? Because God's holy. Uh, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The larger catechism, question 22, did all of mankind fall in the first transgression? Yes. Like I said, undoubtedly. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Does God leave all mankind to perish? Short answer is no. In Sproul's um, book on the confession, he says, As evangelical Christians, we proclaim the gospel of justification by faith alone. The shorthand of this chapter is justification actually, is actually by works alone because the only way anyone will ever stand justified in God's presence is if the covenant of works is perfectly fulfilled. Section 3, this is the covenant of grace which deals with us and our relationship with God after we have fallen. It says, man by his fall made himself incapable of that life by the covenant. The Lord was pleased to make a second one, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit, making them willing and able to believe. So Adam was unable to fulfill the covenant of works. Um, he created the fall. That's what we explored the last two weeks. Um, so we're not looking at why we fell. This is just our relationship with God after we've fallen. Um, we're not capable of righteousness. And we're unable, Adam's unable to save himself and therefore has to be rescued. 
and this must be a gracious intervention on the part of God. And so God was pleased to make yet another covenant. Um, Chad Van Dixhorn, another reference that I use for a lot of this preparation, where the first covenant is a deep expression of God's willingness to have fellowship with his creatures. The second covenant is a staggering display of God's willingness to forgive and to have fellowship with those who are unworthy. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification for all men. So as we'll explore in a second, Christ will fulfill this covenant of grace. So in this covenant, God does not change the standards because they will ultimately be fulfilled by Christ. Um, God will accept us on the basis of what his son has done on the condition that now in the covenant of grace we put our faith in him. Uh, The covenant of works is not annulled but completed by the covenant of grace through Christ. Moving a little fast. We'll look at section four. So halfway through this chapter. The covenant of grace is frequently set forth in Scripture by the name of a testament in reference to the death of Christ, the testator, and to the everlasting inheritance with all things belonging to it therein bequeathed. So, a question, how does a last will and testament go into effect? Somebody has to die. Um, Hebrews 9, 6, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. Testator is one who makes a last will or testament. Christ is the second Adam and also represents the rest of humanity. So as sometimes it may be discouraging that Adam represented us and we're in that condition, but we should be all the more encouraged that we have a better representative than him, which is Christ. Christ assumes the broken conditions of the covenant of works on behalf of his elect seed. Um, And we should be, again, ultimately encouraged by that. Christ, his final discourse with his disciples, he says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So that is what the two first two covenants, or the only two covenants, there's different covenants with different people throughout the, the Bible, with Moses, with Abraham, David. Those are the two major covenants that directly affect us. Um, we're going to look at how it was administered before Christ and then 
how it's administered after Christ. So section 5 is the Old Testament, how, how things were displayed in the Old Testament. This covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the sacral lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews specifically and for signifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and effectious, efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation and is so-called the Old Testament. So how was it administered before Christ? Covenant of grace was administered again by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Passover, ordinances signifying a Christ to come, but exclusively here, almost exclusively for the Jewish nation. Um, the covenant of grace has remained the same in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. <clears throat> in all aspects, in spite of outward cha changes in its administration. So it's the same covenant, both old and new. It's just administered differently. Um, the covenant display was constantly increasing in fullness from Adam to Abraham to Moses to Christ. The Old Testament is full of outward glory and salvation, but imagine the administration of the covenant after Christ. So I want you to sit with this for a minute, this verse. Now if the ministry of death, which is the law carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face. They couldn't even look at his face because of the glory, <clears throat> which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even, have even more glory? And that leads us to the final section, which is how is the covenant administered after Christ? Under the gospel, when Christ, the substance was exhibited, the ordinance in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word. That's what we do every Sunday in the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which, though fewer in number, administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations both Jews and Gentiles, so not specifically for the Jews, is called, <clears throat> and is called the New Testament. There and not, therefore, two covenants of grace, differing in substance, but one covenant, and the same under various dispensations. How is it administered? Again, by more simplicity and fullness. It's more complete. Again, preaching of the word and the sacraments. The present dispensation is superior to the former one. Again, it doesn't null it or change it. It's just dispensed differently. 
present previous the previous was administered by Moses a servant and the present is administered by Christ in his final it's complete Ephesians 1:10 as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth and that's the ultimate solution to the covenant and that is my exposition of this chapter questions comments critiques Yeah, his original covenant, the condition of the covenant of works is perfect obedience. So that's the requirement. And he commanded them to not eat the fruit and to be perfect. And that's the covenant of works. Perfect obedience. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. And they had that full capability of doing that, Larry, because they had not, sin had not been introduced. So there wasn't a work of righteousness. Works were righteous because there was no sin. Well, that's all I have. Thanks for listening. And there's, if you want an outline to look over this week, I've got a few up here.